This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 14 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. Understanding and classifying cell types is really critical to our understanding of biology. For more than 100 years, scientists have classified cell types using available technologies, like microscopy, cell-based functional assays, flow cytometry, and many others. These technologies have painted a picture of cell type based mostly on cell morphology, cell function, and tissue localization. But more recently, single-cell genomics and computational technologies are providing new layers of molecular information to better define cell types. But how do we merge this massive amount of genomics data with other existing data in classifying cell types? Today, I'm at the J. Craig Venter Institute in La Jolla, California. I'm here with Dr. Richard Scheuermann, La Jolla Campus Director at the Venter Institute and Professor of Pathology at the University of California, San Diego. Richard develops novel data mining technologies and single-cell sequencing computational methods to classify cell types. So hi, Richard. Thanks, and welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Maybe we can start out by you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, what your scientific background is, and how you came to be involved in genomics. I'm trained as a molecular biologist, and my research is focused mainly in cancer and autoimmune disease and infectious disease. I guess I got involved in genomics when I started to kind of shift my research program from molecular biology to computational biology and start applying high-throughput techniques to investigate some of the different disease processes that we were interested in. We started really focusing in on development of computational methods to analyze data, including transcriptomic and genomic data. And so we've then been applying those kinds of computational techniques, both in the areas of infectious disease, but also autoimmune disease as well. You actually at one point had a wet lab at UT Southwestern, and you were interested in lymphocyte biology, cell signaling, and lymphoma. And I read that in about 2002, you actually decided to pursue a career as a bioinformaticist. What kind of led you to that decision of mm -hmm. going into bioinformatics and leaving the wet lab behind and embracing the dry lab? Yeah. So I got involved in a project that was called the Alliance for Cell Signaling. And the project was designed to take a couple of model systems and explore them using some relatively new techniques in high-throughput you know, assays, including gene expression microarrays and proteomics analysis to look at the proteome and how that might change in response to signaling. And we picked two model systems, cardiac myocytes and B lymphocytes, to really explore different signaling pathways in those two important cell types. I worked on B cells, and so I was interested in signal transduction in that model system. As being part of that project, what I realized was that technology had advanced enough where we could generate a lot of high-content data using these high-throughput techniques. But what the bottleneck became was how do we interpret the data or how do we even manage the data? Right. 
And so I ended up actually coming to the San Diego Supercomputer Center here at UCSD campus, and I did uh, a sabbatical to learn a little bit about bioinformatics. And what ended up happening is that at that time, we started to put in grant proposals to fund some informatics work that we thought would be interesting to do, and they all got funded. Wow. And so it kind of dragged me into the field because I'm like, oh, well, now I'm funded to do all this work. I better get serious about it and actually learn about it. And so for a while, I kind of maintained both a wet lab and a dry lab, but we became so successful in doing computational biology and bioinformatics that I just shifted over. And for a while, I did exclusively just the dry lab research. I think what I find amazing about that is I talk to so many people in genomics, even now, who say that, you know, when we got started in genomics, which was post-2002, there wasn't really much in terms of education. What yeah. were the challenges for you in developing this field? I think yeah. bioinformatics at that time was quite new. Yeah, it was pretty new. It was it was a challenge. And, you know, I, I had a good foundation from my sabbatical, but, you know, just spending nine months kind of immersing yourself in it wasn't enough. Wow. You know, once we really decided that, hey, we have to get serious about this discipline because we're funded to do this kind of research, how am I really going to force myself to become an expert? So I decided the best way to do this, and I've used this technique several times in my career, is to volunteer to teach about an area. You have been around bioinformatics for a long time now, and we've talked about some of the challenges that you've run into in learning and in training. A lot of the folks that I talked to said that, you know, that's a big challenge for them. Knowing what you know now, given your experience, do you think it's still a challenge for folks to really develop the skills and the tools to approach their scientific problems? We're getting a lot better with that. I mean, now if you look at a lot of universities do have master's degree programs in bioinformatics, there's training in undergraduate courses are available. Places like UCSD have bioengineering PhD programs where a major training track or emphasis is in bioinformatics. So I think there's a lot more opportunities for students to get that background training through normal curriculum, right. which didn't exist you know, 15 years ago when I was getting involved. So is that a reflection and part of how important bioinformatics has become for science in general? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing that, you know, when I was a graduate student um, in molecular biology, we did experiments where you were analyzing one protein at a time. Right. You barely needed basic statistics to analyze <laughs> the data. You know, if it wasn't a tenfold difference, <laughs> right. you didn't believe it anyway. But now biology has really become a big data science. And so I, I think you can't be an effective biologist anymore if you don't have some understanding of at least some of the basic principles in informatics. It's interesting. You know, I've interviewed a lot of genomic scientists, and they've been active in a number of scientific disciplines. And I always ask about what their greatest challenge is, what their biggest bottleneck is to their research. And I've done enough of these interviews now that I can say that there's a pattern. And usually the biggest bottleneck is in data analysis and in the bioinformatics tools. Why do you think people still struggle with the data analysis portion of the workflow so much? There's a lot of explanations, a lot of reasons why people struggle with it. For example, one thing is that People may have been trained in kind of classical statistical analysis where you apply t-tests and things like that. But what we're finding is that these classical approaches to doing statistical analysis just are not applicable to the kind of data that we're dealing with. And so we are always using non-parametric statistic and Bayesian approaches and things like that 
which most people, unless they're card-carrying right. biostatisticians, don't have that kind of background and training. Sure. The other thing is that in order to process and analyze the data, some of our workflows are pretty complicated and you know requires multiple steps in data processing and data normalization, background correction, you know, even before you get to do the comparative analysis that most people want to do. And it seems like every data set that we're dealing with has its own challenges. Single-cell genomics is a classic example. There are certain things that we're running into with that kind of data that we really didn't experience previously. So in bulk well, sequencing, you don't have yeah, the same Yeah, from challenges. bulk sequencing, you don't have the same issues. Like we have this dropout phenomenon right. because we're at the limits of detection of genes that are expressed at low levels. So we have to develop methods for dealing with that. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit now. And I know that you've been active in the area of defining and in standardizing the cell ontology. So I was wondering if you could define a little bit what cell ontology means and why, why it's important. Mm -hmm. The cell ontology is basically a standard vocabulary for describing cell types, giving them a name and giving them a definition. And if you think about it, in order for us to be able to converse and to talk about biological knowledge and even the kinds of experiments that we do, we have to have a vocabulary that allows us to know that we're referring to the same thing. So when I say that I work on B lymphocytes, you know what I'm talking about because we've assigned that name to a particular thing and we've defined it in a certain way such that you kind of know what I'm talking about. Right. We've been working on building these kinds of ontologies, these standard vocabularies, for a long time, and they cover different fields or different domains in biology. Initially, we're, we were interested in this because as an immunologist, we were defining a lot of new cell types using flow cytometry instruments. And so we worked on trying to come up with a standard representation of all the hematopoietic cells. And those definitions were largely based on results from flow cytometry analysis, where you had, you know, a handful of markers that you evaluated on populations of cells, and then you use those to recognize certain subtypes. So for example, B cells express CD19. Mm -hmm. Everybody feels like that's a good marker for B lineage cells. That was kind of the state of the art up until this explosion now in single cell genomics, right. and especially transcriptomics. Over the last year or so, we have been kind of scratching our head and trying to think about how are we going to deal with this explosion of data and explosion of knowledge that are defining all these new cell types. This is a challenge that I think because of our background in working on the cell ontology and our interest in single cell genomics and transcriptomics, I think we're really positioned to be able to tackle this challenge. And we're working on methods that we think are actually working pretty well of coming up with how to define cell types from this kind of data. Is there a challenge in integrating the single cell transcriptomic data with some of the, the existing, you mentioned CD19 as a marker for B cells. Yeah. So is it a challenge to kind of integrate these data sets? Yeah, it is a challenge. We've got sure. the cell ontology. It has several thousand terms that are well-defined that people use on a daily basis, and we don't want to get rid of that. We want to build upon it. 
that means there's a challenge of us figuring out how to integrate this new knowledge with this existing knowledge. We still think that using molecular markers to define cell types is a good strategy. Early on when we were thinking about how are we going to define hematopoietic cells and figure out their lineages, we had a discussion about whether we should base the definitions on cell function or on marker protein expression. What we realized as we were having that discussion was that our knowledge of the function of cells changes all the time. As our knowledge changes about the function, we don't have to change the definition of the cell type. All right. So we're thinking that we want to take a similar strategy as cell types are being defined using the transcriptomic data, the single cell transcriptomic data, except instead of using cell surface protein expression, we're going to be using messenger RNA expression. Do you think that there's a need for standards in terms of the technology platform or standards in terms of the data analysis algorithms that people are using? I think it's impossible to get people to agree on a standard technology. There's a lot of competing technologies, and they all seem to be producing interesting results. The same is true about the computational methods. So I think what the right approach is that not so much agreeing on what technology to use, but making sure that we describe what technology has been used and what computational methods have been used. For defining cell types, what we're thinking of is that we probably need three components to a good definition of a cell type. So the first part is what what specimen, what is the source material? The second part is what are the marker genes? So can we define the necessary and sufficient marker genes that are sufficient to describe that cell type in that specimen? And then the third thing is kind of the metadata that goes along with it, and that is you know, how were the cells isolated? You know, was it random priming, oligo-DT priming? So we think if you capture those three kinds of things, you can come up with a robust definition of a cell type from this kind of a high-throughput assay. In your work, what are your biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles that you have to overcome? I think our biggest obstacles, and we're probably, you know, we're, we're coming from a unique perspective because the computational stuff is kind of easy for us. Yeah, so that is a we, unique We've got that under control. <laughs> so what we struggle with is getting access to relevant samples. For example, one of my projects that uses single-cell transcriptomics is to look at cells from multiple sclerosis patients. And we're especially interested in the sites in which the autoimmune disease is manifesting itself. We can get some materials from cerebrospinal fluid of MS patients, and that's turning out to be pretty valuable, and we're finding some really interesting abnormalities in the cells that you find in CSF. But we'd also like to be able to look in the tissue where you know, all the action is happening. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's not very simple. Not for brain, it's <laughs> for not For brain not or for most tissues, right? right? You know, looking forward over the next five or 10 years, let's say, what is the thing that excites you the most in genomics or in science in general? What what do you think is around the corner that's really going to make a huge impact? I mentioned earlier that we've started to apply artificial intelligence and machine learning in a lot of our informatics pipelines. And once we got comfortable with the principles and the techniques, we started to realize that we can use machine learning in a lot of different ways that go beyond kind of the classical classification 
problem, mm-hmm. which traditionally machine learning is designed to build a model that allows you to determine classes of objects. What we're finding is that the model itself is actually really informative. It's not just solving this classification problem. And so, in fact, what we're doing to identify the necessary and sufficient marker genes, we're using machine learning and taking the model, which is composed of the genes that are good for classifying it, and using those to define the cell types. You know, I used to be pretty skeptical about machine learning, but the more that we've started to use it, the more I realize that this is a really powerful technique, and we've got so much data. You studied with three Nobel laureates. So you studied with Salvador Luria, who I know because I went to Indiana University and I saw his picture in the Department of Biology every day. And he trained Jim Watson, who (laughs) co-discovered the structure of DNA. So you have a really terrific pedigree. Is there something that you've learned in working with all these folks? Is there something that they shared in common that made them so successful in in research? Yeah, so Salvador Luria taught me basic biology as an undergrad. He taught Biology 101, which was amazing. (laughs) The person who had the biggest impact was David Baltimore. As a, I think I was a, a senior undergrad, and I had signed up for his virology graduate school course. And he actually taught me how to read the scientific literature. You know, and I'll never forget his advice. He said that you know, when he reads a paper from the primary literature, he doesn't read the introduction and the discussion. He looks at the methods, and then he examines the results that were obtained. And based on the experiments that were done as they were described in the methods and the results that they produced, then he drew his own conclusions from looking at the papers. I would say that's opposite of how most people read a scientific publication. It probably is, but I always tell this to my students. Whenever we're in class and we're doing kind of critical review of the literature, that's the first thing I tell them is that this is how I approach evaluating the primary literature. And I think it's absolutely the right way to do it. Well, thanks, Richard. Thanks very much for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Sure, my pleasure. So single-cell transcriptomics is yielding new information for defining cell types. New computational approaches are helping to integrate these new genomic data sets with traditional data sets and to improve cell ontology. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Ami Bhatt, Professor of Medicine and Genetics at Stanford University in Stanford, California. We'll be discussing genomics in deciphering host microbe interactions and the human microbiome here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. (laughs)